Thank you. Thank you so much, Noah. Um, and thank you all so much for joining us today as we take a closer look at the events that transpired last month when 48 individuals going through the immigration process were dropped off on Martha's Vineyard. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis um, has taken responsibility for transporting these individuals and families using funds from a state program to transport migrants out of the state of Florida. As we have come to learn, these individuals were not even in Florida, but in fact were in Texas when they were deceived into boarding chartered flights on the promise of receiving legal assistance, work permits, jobs, and housing. Upon learning of the migrants' arrival on the morning of September 14th, the Massachusetts legal community immediately rallied. And today we have the privilege of hearing directly from three of the attorneys who were first on the ground on Martha's Vineyard, who have continued to zealously advocate not only for the rights of these 48 individuals, but who, through their daily work, continuously champion the rights to due process and embody the ideals of justice. Now, before we begin our presentation, I am pleased to introduce Jean Pham, president of the Boston Bar Association, who has some opening remarks. Um, we, we cannot hear you. My apologies. I had a um, the mute button on, on my headset on, but um, just want to thank you, Alex, again for that introduction and, and to want to say good morning to everyone. I'm Ching Pham, the president of the Boston Bar Association. Uh, first, I would like to thank Alex and Solana um, for their work in putting this panel together and to Emily, Julio, and Oren for joining us on the panel today to discuss an issue that is not only dear, now near and dear to the BBA, but to me personally. Um, I'm not sure if many of you know, but I left Vietnam as a refugee in April of 1975, the day that Saigon fell to the North Vietnamese. And um, you know, amidst that chaos, you know, of a country that just lost a 20-year war, and at the same time having to contemplate what life would be like under the new communist regime. You know, my family and I made a decision to leave Vietnam uh, to seek a new life away from that possibility. You know, I was only 10 years old at the time and just remember saying goodbye to my grandparents, to a few aunts and uncle, noting that we were leaving the only country that I had known for a future that was completely unknown. Um, and the US wasn't even on my radar as a destination. You know, I had trusted my, my parents had a plan and only learned later that their only plan at the time was to meet up with my dad's friend at a naval base outside of Saigon uh, because we were invited to join a few families on the river patrol boat, you know, as a means of escape. You know, everything that transpired after that and until we were rescued in the South China Sea by the USS Duluth, you know, as part of the Operation Frequent Wind was just luck, gut, and a willingness to find a way to survive. Yet you know, we were very fortunate to have been rescued by an American ship you know, otherwise we could have ended up perhaps in Australia, Canada, or a number of other countries that had a presence in the South China Sea at the time, trying to assist the fleeing Vietnamese refugees. Um, I just remember uh, being grateful to the crew of the USS Duluth for rescuing us, knowing that with the help of these Americans, we at least um, will live. You know, our journey from when we were rescued until our arrival in a refugee camp in Fort Smith, Arkansas was long and full of trepidation. You know, thinking back now to our situation at the time, uh, perhaps it may not have been so different from what the Venezuelan migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard felt. You know, I could not speak English at the time, didn't even have a working understanding of English. You know, can you imagine, you know, listening to someone speak, asking you questions, trying to help you, and all that you could make out were just strings of, you know, aspirated you know, mumble jumble. You know, you know, we were shuttled by bus, by plane from the Philippines to Guam, then to Arkansas, and then finally to Fort Chaffee, which is a, a refugee camp in Fort Smith, um, Arkansas. You know, I had no idea where we were heading at the time, you know, and each new place was as unfamiliar as the previous. You know, I won't deny that the journey was difficult and at time frightening, but there was just also many acts of kindness directed to me and my family as we made our way um, to a new life here in the States. More than anything, you know, I never sensed any intent to hurt 
or to deceive, you know, but only the desire uh, to help you know, by many of the volunteers or those involved in the refugee relocation process. And if nothing else, you know, that experience 47 years ago has inspired me to spend a lifetime trying to pay it forward. And if I have had to knock down a few barriers in that process, I hope that I've also helped others cross them to find success. Um, and now as BBA president and a member of the greater Boston community, I can say that BBA recognizes and appreciates the indispensable role immigrants play in our community. You know, through our immigration principles, we have supported measures to uphold due process and equal rights, you know, protection rights for immigrants, regardless of the circumstances of their arrival in this country. You know, I'm really proud of the way our community has come together in support of these individuals uh, who really have done nothing but to seek refuge from violence, persecution, and extreme violence, and to define a better life for themselves and their family, not unlike what my family and I did almost five decades ago. You know, we've already seen you know, from the moment that they arrive on Martha's Vineyard, the spirit of community that we seek to foster. You know, volunteers rushing to their aid, offering food, shelter and support in whatever form they could. You know, and we as an organization have the resources and expertise to continue to offer support while also guiding the larger legal community to do the same. You know, I truly believe that every person should have the full and meaningful ability to exercise their rights to access justice uh, through the legal system, regardless of immigration, citizenship status, or economic circumstance. You know, these are access to justice principles that's long held by the BBA. And I have no doubt that every person listening into this discussion today understand the risks to civil rights and civil liberties. And it's here today because you wanna help. And I hope and believe that at the end of this panel, all of us will feel better able and more prepared um, to do whatever that's needed to continue to uphold, not just the principles of BBA, but those of an inclusive and caring community. So with that, thank you again for being here for, and for demonstrating the very best of what BBA stands for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, President Fong, for sharing, sharing that extremely interesting and inspiring story and um, really appreciate that. And, really helps kind of put things into perspective and just the fact that, I mean, that was, you said almost 50 years ago, um, we're still we're still seeing um, similar, similar circumstances today, but thank you. Um, with that, um, I am very pleased to introduce you to our panelists today, Emily Lung, Julio Enriquez, and Oren Selstrom. Um, there is a slight change to our program today. Ivan Espinosa Madrigal, the executive director of Lawyers for Civil Rights, was unable to join us today as he is traveling to the border in Texas uh, to learn more about the busing of migrants to the Northeast. Um, so his colleague Oren has kindly um, agreed to speak in his place. Um, I will now turn it over to Emily, Julio, and Oren to introduce themselves and give a little bit of background about their work. Thanks, Alex. Um, my name is Emily Lung. I'm the supervising attorney at the Justice Center of Southeast Massachusetts, which is a subsidiary of South Coastal County's Legal Services, which is a giant mouthful, meaning we are the field civil legal aid program for southeastern Massachusetts, which does include the Cape and the Islands. Um, a, a traditional legal aid program, we serve low income families and immigrants in the immigration unit. We primarily focus on humanitarian based immigration. Um, we have other clients who are on the islands and on the Cape. So as I said, that's already part of our practice area. And so that is sort of why we got involved right away in the work that was happening there when we heard about the individuals and families who had recently arrived to the island. Thank you so much for inviting us to be here today. So I'm Julio Enriquez. Um, I'm an immigration attorney based in Boston. Um, I'm originally from Venezuela, and I'm also the international legal coordinator of a human rights NGO based in Caracas that's called Foro Penal. Uh, Foro Penal is mainly known for providing pro bono legal representation to uh, people uh, detained for political reasons in Venezuela and to bring these cases at the international level. So I've been involved with uh, human rights response at the international level of the Venezuelan migrants as well. And uh, for that reason, I was uh, definitely going to uh, be a part of uh, uh, going to Marta's Vineyard and, and, and trying to understand uh, what was going on uh, with uh, 
what we didn't know at first uh, was a very confusing uh, situation. And um, I'm very happy to be part of this panel and, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Good morning, everyone. My name is Oren Selstrom. I'm the litigation director at Lawyers for Civil Rights uh, in Boston. We are a legal nonprofit organization that works on issues of racial justice and immigrant justice. Um, that spans a whole range of contexts from voting rights to employment to police accountability, education, um, as well as the issue we're talking about today, uh, immigrant rights. And um, we always work in close cooperation with community allies on the ground and with the uh, private bar. So uh, certainly uh, my fellow panelists this morning and uh, many other members of the BBA. So uh, we were among the first on the ground uh, with the co-panelists here in uh, Martha's Vineyard when this situation unfolded and then have continued to represent our clients since then. Uh, I know Yvonne sends his regrets for being unable to join, but um, I look forward to an interesting and lively discussion this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much um, to all three of you um, for being here today, uh, not just to share with us um, what you witnessed um, on Martha's Vineyard, but for all the work that you have been doing um, since then. Um, I'd like to start um, by asking Julio, um, Julio, if you can share with us what happened on September 14th, um, who were these 48 individuals uh, who were transported to Martha's Vineyard? Um, when did you first learn that they'd been dropped off and what was the situation on Martha's Vineyard when you arrived? Okay, so the first thing to understand is that uh, these people were specifically targeted for being Venezuela and it, we can conclude that it's for two main reasons. One, it's the fastest rising uh, nationality uh, that uh, DHS is encountering in the southern border. Um, when between 2014 and 2019, there was an average of 127 Venezuelans per month crossing. Just in September, there were 33,000 Venezuelans crossing the, the, the border. So the rise happened in a very short period of time, very quickly. Uh, uh, and the other reason is that uh, the majority, the, the largest Venezuelan community is in Florida. And uh, it's very likely that a large number of the people crossing uh, into uh, the US coming from Venezuela are gonna end up in Florida. Uh, so that's why they were targeted. And, and they went specifically to the most vulnerable. They went to a homeless shelter um, and started a very vigorous, recruiting of uh, Venezuelans that were in this homeless shelter. They were offered jobs, free housing. Uh, uh, they were told that they would have free housing until they could become independent based on the jobs that they would get, uh, that they would get English classes, that they would get um, uh, uh, medical assistance on, on their individual needs. And they were offered all these things uh, that, by an organization that was never revealed and that was connected to sanctuary cities or sanctuary states. And uh, the, uh, the recruiting was targeted uh, in the sense that it would change, the, the pitch would change based on the, the necessities of each person. They would tell them, where are you going? I'm going to Philadelphia. We're gonna send you to Philadelphia. Well, I'm, so it, it would change based on the person and, and the things that were offered uh, was clearly trying to dupe them into agreeing to board these private planes that left San Antonio on September 13th um, and flew from San Antonio to Florida, where they just stopped for a few minutes. Then from San Antonio, from Florida to uh, South Carolina or North Carolina, it was two different planes. And then finally to Marta's Vineyard, where they boarded a bus they were dropped off in the parking lot of a uh, 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 of a nonprofit in Martha's Vineyard, and the bus just left. And right that minute is where they learned first where they were. They had no idea what Martha's Vineyard was, and second that there was nobody waiting for them. Uh, so it was a, a moment of anguish and uh, disconcert uh, for all these migrants that just arrived in an island that they didn't even know they existed. Uh, this is people that 
were coming from Venezuela, they just so you have an idea, they cannot fly into Mexico unless they have a visa. And it's not easy to get a, a visa if you're flying, if you are Venezuelan to get a Mexican visa. So they have to cross by foot from Venezuela to the southern border. And they have to cross through all of Central America. They have to cross the Darien Gap in Panama and every single country in Central America all the way north uh, until the border. So when they were in Martha's Vineyard, a lot of them suggested, okay, let's just, you know, we've been walking for a while. Let's just get out of here. Uh, and when they saw in their maps that they were in an island, it, it created so much anguish. Uh, it, it was a very complicated situation for them. Fortunately, Martha's Vineyard uh, had an incredible response um, and, and the residents in there, and uh, they were sent to a church. Um, and uh, many of us uh, arrived the following day, uh, the following morning. And I sat with uh, several of them and I could see that they were not understanding what was happening. Uh, they did not understand why they were news they were all over the place. And uh, that's how I learned about it, because of the news. Um, because the governor of Florida took credit for sending this plane there, and, and that made the news. And uh, uh, sitting there with them and try to explain why they had been pawns in this political game, uh, uh, and, and seeing them, you know, having all these fears about having spent so long time uh, trying to get to the US and now being uh, so vulnerable in this situation. Uh, it, it was very gut-wrenching. Um, it was a very complicated situation the, the very first day. I, I can't even imagine, Julio, and thank you so much for, for being there. Um, um, I uh, want to, you know, we understand that there was emergency needs that needed tending to and the residents of Martha's Vineyard, as you, as you said, immediately stepped up um, and assisted the individuals with emergency needs. Um, but attorneys, of course, had to triage and conduct legal assessments um, of, the, of the issues. Um, so we've heard this group of individuals referred to as asylum seekers, migrants, immigrants, Emily, um, I'm hoping you can explain to us the immigration status of these individuals and the legal posture of their immigration case. Uh, I will do my very best. <laughs> Though as uh, immigration practitioners, we know that immigration is very complicated. And the, I will talk about sort of the majority of folks because they're not, every individual is not in the exact same situation. Um, but for the vast majority of this group, as, as Julio explained, they came to the US, they crossed the border. Uh, some individuals did actually present themselves to um, at a port of entry to request protection. I think that the reality is that many of this group, probably all of this group is coming for various reasons related to fear, safety. A lot of the story that President Fahm had talked about you know, those are the reasons that people come to the United States. They come for safety, they come for security, they're looking for better lives for themselves and for their families. Um, I think a lot of individuals will be seeking asylum and some um, may have made that request at the border. Although these individuals have been uh, put in a different posture with their immigration cases, we believe because they're Venezuelan. Um, and the United States doesn't currently have diplomatic ties with Venezuela, which puts their cases in a different posture than a lot of, for example, in the Northeast, there are large populations of Central Americans, Ecuadorians, other immigrants coming from other countries that are processed in a different way. And so for the vast majority of, of this group of individuals, they were detained by immigration authorities. They were processed, meaning they had basic interviews, fingerprinted, um, and then they were released from custody. And in that release from custody, rather than having their immigration cases initiated with the immigration court, which is fairly common with other individuals that we see, they were by and large given something called a call-in letter to attend appointments with Immigration and Customs Enforcement um, to then initiate their immigration proceedings. 
the group largely received a short-term parole status. Parole is uh, unfortunately a catch-all term that refers to a lot of different folks um, in different postures, but it is essentially a temporary permission to be in the United States, usually for humanitarian reasons. Um, the length of time that people were given for that parole varied. Some of them were very short, as short as 15 days. Some were maybe up to 90 days. So when we were first meeting with folks um, on the island, a lot of the concern was around this immigration paperwork that they were given. Um, as Julio said, once they were released, they were sort of dumped at a, um, essentially a shelter, and then they transported around and then ended up in Martha's Vineyard. And one of the really troubling things and a practice that's been happening recently is that on that immigration paperwork, it seems that immigration officials have been providing addresses of where immigrants are intending to go that do not relate at all to where they intend to go. And in fact, are not addresses that they provided and are locations like homeless shelters, churches, other nonprofits. And it's unclear if this practice is purposefully malicious in order to prevent people from being able to go to these appointments with immigration. I think potentially it is. Regardless of whether it is uh, intentionally malicious, the effect of it is we encountered folks who had appointments that were coming up very shortly with immigration in places like Washington State, Philadelphia, Texas, and they were now have been transported, they'd been deceived and transported to this island, which again, as Julio described, was very stressful because they realized that there's no way to get off an island. If you've been on Martha's Vineyard or you've been on any island, there's, there are not a lot of options for how to leave an island. Um, so now they've been placed on this island, they've been deceived and brought here. They didn't know that's where they were going. And now many of them had these appointments with immigration and customs enforcement coming up in very short order. Probably the very first person I talked to, that was their number one concern. I had this appointment, it's coming up in a couple days. I'm very worried about this. It says that I will be deported if I don't go to this appointment. And so that was, um, I think, you know, one of the one of the really big harms that was was potentially would have been um, would have come from this event if it wasn't for the action and the cooperation ultimately of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. So with those call in letters, folks were supposed to present to various Immigration Customs Enforcement offices throughout the country, depending on whatever information was put on their paperwork and then initiate their immigration court proceedings where they would be able to pursue potentially asylum or other forms of relief that might be available to them under immigration law. Um, luckily, because we were able to meet with folks very early on and were able to get copies of their documentation and based on the good relationships that a lot of both private and nonprofit attorneys in our region have with immigration stakeholders, we were able to get those appointments postponed. So that the news was very, this was on Friday. The news was already everywhere. We had been liaising with ICE, with Immigration Customs Enforcement about the group of migrants and just asked if they could be, because they were aware of their situation, that if this group could be given additional time. That being said, I, I have to say that, that sometimes immigration does offer that in, in less dramatic situations as well. So this wasn't necessarily something that was like very above and beyond um, what you could ask for ICE. I'm not saying that ICE always does the right thing, but in, in this circumstance, um, they did work with us on that. And so we were able to meet those very immediate legal needs that were causing a lot of acute stress for folks. Um, which makes sense. They, they've arrived. A lot of things have happened. They've been transported around. They're looking at their paperwork saying, I'm supposed to be in a place I don't know that someone is telling me is very far away from here in very short time, or else my legal case is not going anywhere. Um, or worse, my legal case will be over or very difficult for me to um, continue. And so those were the, the immediate legal situations of the folks that we encountered in that first few days. So at the very least, the individuals did understand that missing these appointments could result in deportation. So I think that, you know, one of the interesting things of having worked, and I don't know if Julio also feels this way, but the, the group dynamic, it was became very strong in that, that short time that they were together. 
So whether or not every person individually understood the gravity of their immigration case and sort of what had transpired, some members of the group did seem to really understand that. And so that I think also impressed upon other people, like this is something that we are concerned about. And even if we don't fully understand what's happened in this immigration process, we know that 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 there, this paperwork says something and we're supposed to be doing something. And while we don't understand everything that's happening, we are concerned about it. Um, and I will say, having been continuing to be with folks on the base, that question would come up in the like subsequent weeks that we were together on the base. You know, well, I have this paperwork and we said, yes, we've, we've talked about this, but we're happy to talk about it again. We did already comply with this appointment. You will have your attorney will work with you to do your appointment when, when you are relocated and you're more settled. Um, so I don't think that everyone understood immediately or, or possibly still exactly what the situation is, but they knew enough to be concerned about it. And some I do think did understand the possible gravity of missing those appointments. Well, needless to say that your presence and that of all the advocates who were there um, was critical um, at a time where had it not been for your advocacy, the consequences would have been um, potentially much worse. Um, so thank you again for being there. Um, so switching gears a little bit, um, we've learned, you know, more um, about uh, the deception employed to get these individuals and families to board these planes um, under false pretenses. Um, and we know there have been some egregious civil rights violations. Um, so Oren, turning over to you, um, can you share with us um, what were some of the legal issues that you and your team were focused on um, and what type of information were you gathering in order to seek uh, legal recourse on behalf of this group? Absolutely. So I, I think you mentioned, Alexandra, the term legal triage, and I think that is what was going on in those initial few days on Martha's Vineyard was first making sure that people's immediate legal needs were met and that their uh, rights to immigration relief were not going to be prejudiced by this political stunt that had been pulled on them essentially. Uh, and so that was where the involvement of Julio and Emily and all of the pro bono attorneys that um, have now taken on individual immigration cases was so critical. Um, at the same time, it became quite clear that our clients' civil rights had been violated as well, precisely because of that fraud and misrepresentation that had been visited upon them, um, that no one was aware that they were going to be used as political props, essentially, uh, that they had been induced into this situation under false pretenses. Um, and I do think in order to understand that, um, it's really necessary to step back and, and really understand just how vulnerable this population is. Uh, and I think President Baum and uh, Julio and Emily have talked a lot about uh, you know, the uh, conditions in uh, our clients' home country that were uh, led them to flee in the first place, that many of them uh, had walked across Central America and Mexico, you know, largely on foot to arrive in the United States. They saw our country as a place of refuge. Uh, they crossed the border, presented themselves to immigration officials, were released from federal immigration. And it was then that Governor DeSantis and his accomplices on the ground in San Antonio uh, really preyed on that vulnerability. Uh, people who were in very desperate situations, um, largely outside this migrant resource center in San Antonio, as Julio said, where, um, a woman who was identified in our class action lawsuit as Perla, who people may have heard of, um, was there really preying on that vulnerability, offering desperately hungry people $10 McDonald's gift cards. Um, she saw one client who uh, needed shoes because again, he had uh, walked largely uh, from Venezuela and needed new shoes. And so she bought him new shoes. So in this way, really began to very insidiously gain the trust um, of our clients, um, then put them up in hotels. The Migrant Resource Center had a three-day limit on how long people could stay. So people uh, were in danger of becoming homeless and so put them up in, in hotels and then started offering them uh, free flights to cities on the East Coast, to Boston, to 
DC and so forth. And um, all the time, never letting on that this was all a political stunt by the Florida governor. People would ask, who are you? Why are you doing this? Uh, and the answer back was always, um, you know, this is being done by an anonymous benefactor or by churches and foundations. Um, again, really preying on that vulnerability of our clients, promising them, as Julio has said, uh, you know, uh, employment when they reach their destination and education for their children and all these false promises that were made in order to induce them to travel. So that is what we began hearing certainly from the beginning from our clients and then really piecing together all the elements of this fraud and misrepresentation that went in to getting people to board the planes. Of course, as my co-panelists have said, it was only when the flights arrived on Martha's Vineyard, people then were abandoned. Uh, the people who had, had been so nice and presented themselves as good Samaritans at that point vanished after they videotaped our clients, sent the video to Fox News. People were calling the, you know, the cell phone numbers they had been given by the folks on the ground in San Antonio at that point, there was no answer. They had been utterly abandoned after having been used as part of this political stunt. So there are clear civil rights violations. We can talk a little bit in more detail if we have time about that. But within a week, we had filed a federal class action lawsuit on behalf of our clients uh, in federal district court here in the District of Massachusetts, a case that's currently pending before Judge Burroughs. Thank you also for doing that um, and for being there um, on behalf of these individuals. Um, and we um, look forward to learning more about the lawsuit. Um, we know, of course, um, the work obviously didn't stop after that first weekend on Martha's Vineyard. Um, the migrants, as you all mentioned, um, were eventually transferred um, off the island into Joint Base Cape Cod. Um, Julio, can you uh, share with us what efforts have been undertaken uh, to provide continued legal support? So uh, after they were sent to Martha's Vineyard, uh, they were offered these sheltering in the Cape, um, the uh, military base in, in the joint base in, in Cape Cod. And while they were there as a group, it was easy for um, attorneys to provide, to continue providing uh, legal assistance. And, and one of the things that, that was provided for them was, uh, as Emily was saying, um, was continued uh, to make sure that they, uh, that, uh, that they uh, were in compliance with ICE and their check-ins requirements, uh, but also moving forward, um, trying to understand their individual situations and, and trying to understand uh, what were they available uh, what was what was available for them uh, from a legal perspective, and uh, one of the main things that was identified from the beginning is that they were eligible for a U visa, uh, potentially eligible for a U visa, and and a U visa uh, is uh, offered for victims of crimes that help the authorities uh, that cooperate with the authorities through a criminal investigation, and um, it, it turns out that a criminal investigation is happening for the events that took place in San Antonio, um, precisely by the sheriff of the of Bear County in San Antonio. And uh, we were able to uh, coordinate interviews with um, uh, the Bear County, uh, the, uh, the office of the sheriff of Bear County um, and individuals at uh, the, the base. And we were also able to sit down individual with uh, many of these, every one of them, to try to understand what other potential avenues for relief they could have. Many of them could be eligible for asylum and uh, they they come precisely because they're fear, they, they, they have a very clear fear of returning to Venezuela uh, for situations of violence that they encounter there. Uh, and uh, other, for instance, some of the children's may be eligible for special immigrant juvenile status. Um, and um, these are, cases that being, are being treated individually. And every one of these migrants are now represented uh, by a, a pro bono attorney, a pro bono immigration attorney that is uh, taking them to the next steps, the U visa, the asylum for those who qualify, the SIJ for those who qualify, and 
any other potential immigration uh, relief that, that could be out there for them. As you've mentioned in the past too, um, when we were speaking about this panel earlier, um, you know, it's important to keep in mind that these are all individuals, right? I mean, they can't just be, lumped, I mean, sure, we'll talk about the class action in a second, but they can't be just lumped into, you know, a category of, of individuals. They all have unique um, forms of legal relief for which they might be eligible, and it's important to really understand their individual cases um, as well. So we know that just yesterday, USCIS announced a new policy specifically um, for Venezuelans. Um, Julio, can you talk to us a little bit about that um, and how it will inevitably impact these individuals and so many others um, who have arrived or who will be arriving um, from Venezuela? So as we were mentioning at the beginning, uh, the, the Venezuela is the fastest rising group of migrants encountered at the southern border. Um, and uh, yesterday, the federal government decided to create a new program for uh, how to deal with the Venezuelans that are coming through the border. Um, they uh, are offering uh, a sponsorship uh, for up to 24,000 Venezuelans. Um, bear in mind, just in September, 33,000 Venezuelans were encountered at the border. So this is a, a number that is not particularly high, considering the number of Venezuelans that are migrate into the US. Um, so 24,000 Venezuelans will be able to be sponsored to come on a form of humanitarian parole um, to enter the United States uh, for a period that's still to be determined one year or two, potentially uh, to provide them the opportunity to apply for other forms of relief. This is only available for Venezuelans that are outside of the United States and that do not have a dual nationality and that do not have any form of immigration status in a third country. So if uh, there's a Venezuelan in Peru or Colombia or Chile uh, that has already been granted some form of immigration status in, in that country, that person is not eligible. Um, uh, one of the other things, and I think the, the most relevant uh, piece of information on, on, on this is that, uh, whoever does not qualify, whoever does not follow this process, either because, for whatever reason, it, and they are they get to the southern border, Title 42, which is a, a measure to expel uh, migrants from the border based on uh, medical or, or, or health reasons, um, all Venezuelans will be returned to Mexico. So this is something that has been uh, coordinated with the government of Mexico between the Mexican and US authorities. And Mexico has agreed to receive every Venezuelan that is expelled uh, from the southern border. So uh, the obviously the purpose of this is to try to reduce the number of Venezuelans that are coming through the border. Um, and, and we're seeing this, one, one of the immediate effects that it has on, on for instance, the group of, five, five, uh, the, of 50 migrants that arrived in Martha's Vineyard, uh, is that we've been among the things that we've been doing is trying to get uh, USCIS to DHS to grant parole for them for, for extend their paroles as, as Emily said they had many of them had very short spheres of parole between 15 and 90 days uh, for the majority of them that's already over if not for all of them um, so we wanted to have DHS grant an additional period of parole while they're here, while we're sorting out everything else. Um, I, I, I think it becomes a lot harder for us to persuade DHS to get parole uh, to these 50 uh, migrants when they just created a program that specifically excludes people that is already in the United States. So um, uh, that is one of the things that we're seeing. And, and this is as recent as yesterday. This was announced yesterday. We'll continue, we'll continue to keep a lookout um, for that new measure and how it will continue to affect so many individuals. Um, so, you know, uh, for, the, for the most part, the outpouring of support um, has been great. Um, and, you know, due to the media attention about this specific incident, um, but we know that this is not the first time um, that migrants have been transported to Massachusetts um, and to other major cities across the country. Um, Emily, uh, going back to you, can you um, 
can you uh, tell us a little bit more, like what happens if this troubling trend uh, continues and more individuals are bused or flown in from other states? Yeah, um, there has already actually this summer been other buses of immigrants who arrived to Massachusetts. Um, it didn't receive nearly the same media attention, but many of those individuals are uh, in equally vulnerable situations. And there were some stories about folks who, again, they were also dropped off at churches, at homeless shelters. There was no one to receive them. There were individuals who were staying in emergency rooms because they had nowhere to go. And you know, then they had to leave the emergency rooms and there was still nowhere for them to go. And I think that um, what has been really uplifting is to see that the community, the legal community, the social support community, the state, that there have been so many supports offered to this group of individuals who was brought to Martha's Vineyard. And while their situation was certainly dramatic and there are some particularities in terms of the civil violations and, and what happened to them, their vulnerabilities are the same as other immigrants who are arriving to the state daily and who that we work with in the community all the time. And so what we really need is some systemic support to help individuals. Again, you know, as we've discussed over and over, they are involved in a legal process in which they are seeking various forms of immigration relief that exists under our domestic laws and some of them enshrined in international laws. And things like Title 42, I think, fly in the face of international obligations to uphold the Refugee Convention. We are supposed to be a country that is providing protection to individuals who are fleeing persecution. And we are failing to do that in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that you know what this has demonstrated to me is that we are capable of providing support to individuals who are vulnerable, who are going through this process. But this 50 individuals, 49 individuals, is not the sum of everyone who needs our assistance. And so we really need to look to systemic structural support that can be provided, legal support. In the immigration process, you are not provided an attorney. If you can find a pro bono attorney, then that is a very lucky situation to be in. And it is amazing that we have been able to provide pro bono support for all of these individuals. But there are many others who don't have the support and attention of this group of immigrants but are equally vulnerable in my eyes. And so I think it's, it's necessary for us to have a broader conversation on a state level between states. You know, this is, this is something that I think goes to the core of how we treat people who come to the US. Are we a place that is welcoming? Are we a place that is um, providing basic shelter, helping people to meet their necessities? Again, while they're going through a legal process that exists and where their rights to that legal process need to be protected. Um, so I'm hoping that this opens up a broader conversation of how we address the needs of the lo much larger group of immigrants who are coming to the Commonwealth, but also generally to the United States and how we can provide this level of support to a, a larger group of individuals because many, many others are in a very similarly vulnerable situation in, in my eyes. Absolutely, absolutely, thank you. Um, Oren, uh, Julio mentioned U visas. Um, is there a potential for criminal charges um, to be brought against uh, Governor DeSantis um, and the other individuals involved in what is clearly a political ploy? So we are aware, as Julio mentioned, that the Bear County Sheriff uh, in San Antonio has opened an investigation into the criminal matters. Um, now that our civil suit is on file, we are essentially leaving that to law enforcement to handle and concentrating on the civil side of things. But certainly um, that investigation is ongoing. Um, our clients um, are ready and willing and able to provide whatever assistance to law enforcement is needed. Um, but we are leaving that to the law enforcement and focusing on the civil side. But we'll also also keep a lookout for that. Um, uh, one more question, because this term gets thrown around um, a lot. Um, Emily, is Massachusetts a sanctuary state? And is that even an accurate legal classification? I, I would say I of the beholder. Uh, <laughs> sanctuary does, does not have any legal meaning. Sanctuary is actually a, a very old historical term um, that refers to safety, 
safety from persecution. And traditionally, churches have been the ones who have offered sanctuary. Um, historically, going back centuries, <laughs> that is the origin of the concept of sanctuary. And there, there is no legal connection between the term sanctuary and any legal rights that anyone has. Um, I think that term has an origin that, that is meant to be safety for persecuted individuals, but has now been very politicized um, and contextualized to mean a lot of things that it doesn't mean. Sanctuary doesn't have any connection to what the federal immigration policies are. Sanctuary doesn't have any authority over you know, what law enforcement, state, local, or federal do. Um, in, in the way in which sanctuary is used, it really means as states and localities, we always have the authority, um, minus some federal preemption things, but we, we have certain authority to make our own rules about how we conduct ourselves as a state on state and local issues. And we can choose to do that in a way that's very affirming and welcoming to our immigrant neighbors and residents, and we can choose to do it in a way that is not. And I think, you know, when I think of what that what sanctuary means in a political sense, you know, sanctuary really just means are we welcoming our immigrant neighbors and friends within our policies or are we not doing that? Um, but there really is no legal term for sanctuary. Um, and I think it, it unfortunately is a term that has been very much co-opted for political purposes. Thank you. So we do have a couple of questions in the chat. And before um, I open that up, um, I want to take a minute to thank you, Emily, Julio, and, and Lauren, for your immediate, immediate response to, to this situation. And, and of course, to so many others who were there. Um, but you didn't you didn't hesitate um, to assist these these newcomers and to provide legal representation um, to those who needed it the most. Um, and so as members of the Massachusetts legal community, you truly you've made us all so proud. Um, and you should know that we are truly, truly grateful for your dedication. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I am going to open it up um, to some of the questions. Um, the first question um, here is um, first a thank you, of course, um, to you again for being here. Um, so other than it being a political move um, from the Florida governor, um, how can he take credit for such an appalling act and feel proud about it? Um, what was his goal? Um, Julio, I'll, I'll turn that over to you. So now I have to express what the census goal was. Uh, it's uh, hard for me to uh, claim to understand what his goal was. Um, my impression um, is that um, this was uh, focused on getting as much attention uh, as possible. Uh, I think we have elections coming and they wanted a lot of attention, something other than abortion um, and immigration polls well with Republicans. Um, I believe he just wanted a lot of attention on these uh, and, 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 and he dedicated an, an incredible amount of, of resources um, to these small group of people uh, in, in the scheme of things. This is a very small group of people. Um, and uh, it, it, it's percolated that, that more than $600,000 were paid just to the, uh, the, the company that uh, had the planes. How much they ended up paying in this small group I don't know, and whether it pays off for them on the attention that they have obviously received. To that, I have, I don't know, but uh, I, I think it, it, is, it was basically done for attention. And in a way, uh, they succeeded. If I could just pick up on that, I, I, um, I think that's exactly right, what Julio said. And I think one of the interesting things for us about the case is that uh, this is something where the question of who did it is not a question. You know, Governor DeSantis stood up the following day and took credit, if you want to call it credit, for this stunt. And so this is not a type of case where normally what we're doing is there's kind of some you know low-level 
staff person or operative who has done something and the question is how far in discovery can you will that lead you to the top um, this is almost the reverse situation where the person at the very top the governor of the state of florida has stood up and said i did this political stunt i use these people as political props and this is my doing uh, so certainly we're going to learn more in discovery about all of the facts and threads that lead, uh, you know, the people on the ground in San Antonio, the plane companies and so forth. But um, this was clearly done by a governor of the United States, which is really appalling behavior and exactly as Julio says, was done for his own uh, political purposes. That's what I think strikes so many people across the political spectrum as so deeply problematic about this situation. And also in our view is what makes it illegal and unconstitutional. It's incredible to think too that the complaint is a lack of resources. And yet we know that the governor used you know, $12 million for, for this program. Imagine if we used those funds and, and invested in our communities, um, what, what a difference that would make as opposed to, to this. Um, anyways, as a follow-up um, to the prior question, um, we have another question in the chat. Um, what are the possible consequences um, for the officials behind the transfer, as well as what is the relief sought in district court? Perhaps, Oren. So I can address uh, the relief sought. Um, Primarily what our lawsuit seeks to do is to hold all the perpetrators accountable for this stunt. Uh, and we, our clients have said over and over again that they don't want what happened to them to happen to anyone else. So that is the primary goal is to stop uh, this kind of fraud and misrepresentation from going forward in the future. We also have damages claims to make our clients whole for their civil rights violations. Um, but primarily, I think what has happened already is, um, you know, the spotlight has really been shown on the kind of fraud and deception that happened in this case. I think the governor did not count on that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, what he assumed was he would get his uh, political points scored with the video, you know, given to Fox News. Um, and that then the people who had been used in this way would essentially just disappear from view. And I think that is what um, we, meaning all of us here on the panel and many others who have helped in this effort has really been able to do is to lift up our clients' voices and to say, you know, these were individuals, these were human beings that you did this to, and here are their stories. Here's what it felt like for them to be abandoned on an island that can only be reached by you know, boat and airplane uh, and deceived in this way, what that meant for them, what that felt like for them. And that is really the key to all our efforts is to uh, shine that light on the humanity of the situation so that this does not happen again. With that, this next question, um says, do you anticipate further political stunts of this kind, or do you suppose that your advocacy um, would dissuade it? And, and you're being thanked, um, of course, for your advocacy and all of your work. Um, I can just pick up on that. And then certainly Julio and Emily um, uh, can chime in as well. We already know that one of the flights that Governor DeSantis had planned subsequent to the Martha's Vineyard flight was canceled. Uh, there was a flight that was set to go to Delaware, um, and that was the day that our lawsuit was filed, and that ended up, they, actually the, pl the plane ended up flying, an empty plane, we understand, another you know, $600,000 paid out of uh, COVID relief funds is, is where this money is coming from. Uh, but was an empty plane. And I certainly believe that the scrutiny that this has uh, been under, the fact that the Martha's Vineyard stunt was able to be uh, you know, humanized as we've been able to do, that all of the scrutiny that's come from law enforcement, that's come from uh, federal regulators and from you know, uh, the outcry from across the political spectrum, certainly uh, had a, a, a large part in what happened on that, uh, that, that scuttled flight. So our hope is that at least the kind of misrepresentation and fraud 
that induced people to travel um, will not happen again. But if it does, we're certainly willing and able and uh, ready to move as expeditiously as possible to stop that legally. Thank you. Um, so this next question um, comes from somebody um, out of Western Mass. I help coordinate an asylum support network in Western Massachusetts. Uh, we are going through a housing crisis in our area. And one of our biggest fears right now is that buses will come and we won't be able to house everyone. Could you talk a little bit about the housing resources offered to the folks on Martha's Vineyard and how the community made sure that people had places to stay? I will, I will volunteer as tribute. And <laughs> so um, this is a great question and is, is really, uh, I think the statement that there is a housing crisis in Western Mass could just be stated there's a housing crisis in America. And um, the housing piece is, it has been one of the most difficult pieces to navigate um, with this folk of, this group of newcomers. Fortunately for them, there were, because of their parole status that I talked about earlier, some of them were eligible for um, some limited state emergency programs. Um, in Massachusetts, we have a right to shelter, it called it's emergency assistance shelter program, but it's for children. So it's only for families with children um, or for children. And there is actually not enough funding or space in that program generally. So there's a lot that needs to be done with our state programs as well. And so unfortunately for this group, fortunately and unfortunately, um, fortunately for this group, we were able to connect them with housing. There were housing services, nonprofits that assisted with some of that. Also the Massachusetts DHCD, which is the Massachusetts Department of Housing um, and Com Community Development um, assisted with some of the housing surge. But a lot of it was just private housing, so individuals who either offered to take people in or landlords that offered to give people sort of rent breaks or assistance and then some other assistance. Also, again, the attention that this group received, um, they did receive some additional funding from national nonprofits, from local nonprofits. So they're in a much stronger position, even though they, they are still vulnerable, they're in a stronger position because of the media attention that they did get. And you know the group that I talked about that had arrived earlier this summer, the, they are struggling to find to be housed um, and to find any adequate housing. So the 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 short answer is that through a lot of um, assistance through private offers of housing and and landlords and some housing assistance programs, this group was able to be housed. But we know that that is an ongoing crisis, you know, not just for newly arrived folks to the state, but just generally. And I don't know, I'm hoping that, you know, advocacy on a state level is, is happening. I know colleagues who are working on that to try to look at other solutions, not just for this group, not just for arriving immigrants, but, but more generally to address the housing crisis. Um, but I don't have a great answer for that one. <laughs> Um, and happy to talk more offline about the specifics of that, but that's sort of the broad strokes of what happened to this group. Thank you, Emily. And as you've said, you know, this is just this is just a bigger a bigger issue that we all need to not forget. Um, so we've learned the identity of this woman, Perla. Um, the question on the chat is: Does Perla's counterintelligence background and probable use of military approaches in recruiting the refugees? cause her actions to violate statutes governing private militaries and unauthorized militias? Um, I can um, address that. I, and the, the question is referring to the fact that the um, one of Governor DeSantis's accomplices on the ground in San Antonio, Perla, has now been identified by the New York Times and CNN as a former uh, military officer and counterintelligence officer, essentially a, uh, a spy. And I, I think there's many interesting things about that. We not independently identified uh, or confirmed that at this point, but assuming it turns out to be true, I think the, the idea that this was, that's who was uh, actively on the ground in San Antonio is not surprising. Um, this was clearly a highly orchestrated effort built on, you know, deception and misrepresentation, which 
uh, you know, fits right into the narrative of a spy essentially was on the ground doing this in a very covert operation. Um, and I think we will learn more as we go about uh, where those threads lead, um, you know, what other people may have been involved, what other resources may have uh, been involved, and to see whether that creates additional uh, liability. I think certainly the fact that this was a state governor who was interfering in federal immigration proceedings, uh, as Emily and Julio have both mentioned, uh, is a key claim in our lawsuit. Uh, that there are preemption claims, that this type of interference by uh, state officials in federal immigration proceedings uh, is uh, preempted and illegal under the Supremacy Clause. So I think there are many different threads to this that are going to be uncovered as we go, uh, and the improprieties run in many different directions. Very very interesting to see how that all is going to unfold. And again, to think that, you know, I think just the fact that Governor DeSantis was like claiming victory, you know, for this for this event initially, you know, hopefully and very slowly that will all unravel um, and come back to him. So um, not seeing any more questions on the chat. Um, so I do want to thank again, Oren, Julio, and Emily for being here and for sharing with us um, and explaining to us this very complicated situation. Um, thank you again for all of your work. Um, and thank you to all of you um, that have come here today um, to get additional information and learn more um, about the situation. Um, hopefully, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks um, and whether DeSantis's uh, ploy will have any larger effect on the national uh, midterm election. So um, thank you once again to all of you. Um, thank you all to our um, uh, attendees for your wonderful questions. Um, I, think, I think that's it.